He is alive. Amen? Well, as I mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, God in his sweet providence has once again orchestrated our study uh, through the book of Philippians to bring us to a perfect passage for Resurrection Sunday. And for those of you that are visiting uh, with us today, we've been studying through this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and uh, we have arrived in chapter 3, and uh, we are going to look at uh, the last two verses of this chapter this morning together, and we're glad that you're here to uh, join us in, this, in, our, in our study. But uh, if you would take your Bibles and turn there, Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Father, we thank you for your sweet um, orchestration of all things and how um, this was the passage that you ordained for us to look at together on Resurrection Sunday. And while there's more uh, in these two verses that we could possibly cover or comprehend um, in the next few moments, we ask that your spirit would illuminate our minds to grasp just enough of what he wanted us to know through these verses so that we could be uh, who you want us to be. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we hear the word resurrection, particularly on Easter Sunday, we naturally think about Jesus rising from the dead, as we should. And today we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God-man who triumphed over the grave and ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the, God the Father with a resurrected, glorified, immortal, incorruptible body. At the same time, though, I think it is important and appropriate for us to consider how Christ's resurrection provides us with both a preview and the proof of our future resurrection when Christ returns. Someday all of us who have committed our lives to follow Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior will experience the same kind of supernatural transformation that He did when He rose from the dead. And this amazing change, the Scripture says, will happen in the twinkling of an eye. And nothing moves faster then our eye, and in a twinkling of an eye, our perishable body will miraculously morph into that which is imperishable, just like the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus. Now, this thought of having an indestructible, incorruptible body has intrigued believers for centuries, even even unbelievers, I think, are fascinated by the concept of something, someone being able to experience this magical metamorphosis, which is a common theme in a lot of books and, and movies. All the way back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
to The Wolfman and all the other werewolf movies that have come out since then. The Incredible Hulk, Captain America, that was quite a transformation from that scrawny little guy to, right, Captain America. And maybe most recently, um, The Beauty and the Beast and that glorious transformation that takes place where at the end of the movie where that ugly monster is transformed into this handsome prince. I think these these well-known storylines prove that God created the human mind with an innate understanding that some sort of supernatural transformation is possible. Furthermore, I think that God designed the, the human heart with an innate longing to experience some some kind of extraordinary change that will enable us to live forever. This isn't just a a quaint fairy tale or a clever movie plot. This is a profound reality that comes straight out of God's Word. The Bible says that we are all immortal beings who will live forever in either heaven or hell, but we are presently encased in in mortal bodies, in mortal flesh. The Bible also says that the risen Lord Jesus Christ will come back someday and provide our immortal souls and immortal body in order to suit us for an eternity of either serving him in heaven or suffering away from his presence in hell. Those of us who are citizens of heaven by virtue of the fact that our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life there in heaven... We live in eager anticipation of that glorious day when Christ will come back and and powerfully transform our sinful earthly bodies into sinless heavenly bodies. And then when when that happens, we will finally be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ and our salvation will be complete. We've been learning here in our study in Philippians that the ultimate reason that God saved us was to make us like his son Jesus, for whom he predestined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 28 and 29. And so as we've been learning from the example of Paul, being conformed to Christ should be our greatest passion, our greatest pursuit, our greatest goal, our greatest hope as Christians, to be like Jesus. And in Paul's life was consumed with being conformed to Christ. If you remember back in verse 10 here, and just to remind us of the context here, seeing we've taken a week or two off from our study, Paul says in Philippians 3.10, he talks about wanting to know him, know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you notice, Paul never explicitly stated what the goal or prize was that he was pressing towards or seeking to obtain. I think he left that for verses 20 and 21 because here in these last two verses of chapter 3, he clarified exactly what he was striving to achieve or to attain. He wanted to be glorified, which is the climax of our salvation in Christ. 
according to, to the scriptures, there, the doctrine of salvation um, is, a, is a massive doctrine. It's a, it, it's a massive thing to get our minds around, but I think it helps when we just break it down into its three distinct phases or, or aspects of justification and sanctification and glorification. There's a, there's a past element of our salvation. There's a present element of our salvation. There's a future element or aspect of our salvation. The, the past element of salvation is called justification. This is the, the, the one-time event that occurs at the moment of our conversion when God applies the substitutionary work of Christ to our account and forgives our sins and declares us righteous and blameless before him. And so we can say this morning that we have been justified. The second phase is the present phase called sanctification. This is the the gradual, ongoing process that begins the moment we're justified, whereby the Spirit of God sets us apart from sin and grows us and matures us and conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. And so we can accurately say this morning that we are being sanctified at this moment. And then finally, there's the future aspect of salvation, and that's called glorification. And that's the final act of God when he will, uh, the moment we die or when Jesus returns, all of our sin will be permanently removed and will be perfectly conformed to Christ for all eternity. And so we look forward to the day when we will be glorified. Now, here in verses 21 and 22, Paul zeroed in on the last part or phase or aspect of salvation, and that is our glorification, which is directly connected to and contingent upon Christ's resurrection. And so we need to understand this morning that the resurrection of Christ is not just some historical event. It's an eschatological event. It's a, it's a future event. It has ramifications for our future as Christians. And so in these two verses, Paul explained how understanding and, and staying focused on our future glorification is critical to us being conformed to the image of Christ. He's told us, Uh, in verse 17, that we need to follow Christ-like examples. That's an important part of becoming like Jesus. We need to follow Christ-like examples. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We also need to be sure or be careful to flee from Christ's enemies. Verse 18, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And so we need to follow Christ-like examples. We need to flee from Christ's enemies. But thirdly, we need to focus on Christ's return. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He is even to subject all things to Himself. And so what we see in this passage is three ways, three ways to stay focused and motivated in our lifelong pursuit of Christ-likeness. If you're in that pursuit, if you're a Christian, You're in that pursuit, a lifelong pursuit. It'll take a lifetime. And even then, a life won't be long enough to become like Jesus. We'll have to wait until Jesus comes back. We have to wait 
until we're glorified in heaven to be perfect like he is. But what are the ways, what are some ways that we can stay focused and motivated in our lifelong pursuit of Christ likeness? First of all, we need to exist like this world is not our home. Secondly, we need to expect Christ to return for us at any moment. And thirdly, we need to envision what will be like in heaven. Let's look at these three ways to stay focused and motivated in our pursuit of Christ likeness this morning. Number one, we need to exist like this world is not our home. Verse 20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven. That word for, he's telling us he's contrasting his life and the life of the Philippians with the enemies of the cross in the previous verses who, who it says, who were, their minds were set on earthly things. They were preoccupied with the world and everything in it and they only focused on physical and material things and they, they carried on like they were going to live forever uh, on this earth and, and so they never thought of eternal things. And yet Paul says that the values, the, the focus, the, the destiny of the, the friends or the followers of the cross are completely different than those of the enemies of the cross. They, they know that there's more to this life than this world has to offer. This is not our final destination. This is not our ultimate home. And so Paul said, for our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and the Philippians were, were considered citizens of Rome, even though they didn't live in Rome. Uh, they enjoyed all the same privileges and protection of those who actually lived there in the royal city, and they were very proud of their status as Roman citizens. We learned about that when we started our series on the book of Philippians. When you look at the historical account of Paul's initial visit there, in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, uh, Luke made a big deal to point out that they were a Roman colony and that they were citizens of Rome. And so the members of the church in Philippi, when they heard this, um, they knew what it was like to be citizens of a far-off city. They, they were a colony of foreigners. And so I'm sure they were quick to grasp what, what Paul was getting at here when he said, for our citizenship is in heaven that they were to, to see their church as a colony of heaven here on earth. And they were to make sure that their conduct reflected to those around them that they were citizens of heaven. He mentioned that back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The same applies to us, that, that our church here this morning should function like a colony of heaven here on earth. And like Abraham in, in Hebrews 11, who lived in a tent. Why did he live in a tent? Why did, why did he never build a house? Well, because it says he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And like, like Abraham, we need to be tent dwellers who realize that we're just camping out here on earth. Because this world is not our home. We're just, we're just passing through. And uh, let's be honest. I mean, this is, this is hard to do. Especially when we've been blessed by God to live in the greatest country in the world. It's easy to, to, to feel proud of that and to enjoy all the privileges of that. And, and yet we need to uh, desire a better country. 
as Hebrews 11.16 says, that is a, a heavenly one and, and live in such a way that God is not ashamed to be called our God for he has prepared a city for us. It should be obvious to everyone in our family, in our neighborhood, in our work and school and community that we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. When Pilate confronted Jesus and asked him to defend himself, this is what Jesus said in John 18, 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, said, we should not be conformed to this world because it's not, we are not of the world. We should not be conformed to this world. And so we should ask ourselves, can the waitress at the restaurant tell that we're a citizen of heaven by the, way we, by the way we treat her? Do the people at your work or school see something different about you by the way you talk, by the way you act? Have they ever looked at you in an odd way, wondering what planet you're from? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. Just turn to the right a few pages. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Peter was writing to Christians who were scattered all over Asia. They were experiencing persecution for their faith in Christ. And he was writing to encourage them to stand strong in the midst of that persecution and suffering. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11... He reminds them that they are aliens and strangers. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And so what we see described here is, is as believers, we have a dual citizenship. We're, we're dual citizens. We, we're citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of earth. And, and so while we're citizens of heaven, we, we must still submit to the God-ordained authorities here on this earth. But our first loyalty is to our heavenly king and the, and the focus of our lives and hearts and, and, and even our eyes should remain heavenward. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Talking about the return of Christ. Someone said that too many Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Well, that may be true, but I think there are just as many, if not more, Christians who are so earthly-minded that they're no heavenly good. We shouldn't get too preoccupied with 
earthly things or get overly attached to the things of this world or be easily seduced by worldly temptations. One of my favorite scenes in in that classic analogy of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, written by the Puritan John Bunyan, is when Christian had to pass through Vanity Fair. It was a fair that had all the things that the world had to offer. And so as Christian and his companions walked down the midway of this fair, the people were calling out from either side, trying to get them, entice them to come and try the wares of the world. And, 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 uh, and Christian uh, was having to make it through to get to heaven. And so what did he do? He stuck his fingers in his ears and he, he, he turned his eyes heavenward and said, turn my eyes away from vanity. It's a great example, a great illustration of, of what, it, what it's like to, to live as citizens of heaven here on earth. And so the first way to stay focused and stay motivated in our pursuit of Christ-likeness is to exist like this world is not our home. To exist like this world is not our home. But secondly, we need to expect Christ to return for us at any moment. We need to expect Christ to return for us at any moment. Moment. Notice back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that when Jesus was here on earth, he promised that he would come back to get his followers to, to, to bring them with him back to heaven to live with him forever. Uh, He told his disciples in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You may remember that uh, immediately after Jesus ascended back to heaven, and the disciples were gawking into heaven, a pair of angels reaffirmed Christ's promise to return. And they said this, it says they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going and behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so you can read throughout the New Testament And even the Old Testament, all of these promises of the return of Christ. And and particularly when you read Paul and and the other apostles and what they wrote, it's clear that they all expected Christ to return in their lifetime. And they lived accordingly. How about you? Do you expect Jesus Christ to return in your lifetime? Is that possible? Absolutely. Especially in light of the fact that our new president is starting to bomb a lot of things. And, and so you don't know what that's, how that's going to play into, right, a convergence of the nations, particularly in the Middle East, and who knows what the Lord has in store for us. But as Christians, we should look forward to with anticipation that we win, no matter how this thing plays out. It's not about North Korea, and it's not about ISIS. It's about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so we should live in 
in anticipation of the day of the Lord. And Paul has already mentioned the return of Christ a number of times in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That was a reference to uh, Christ's return. Uh, in verse 10, he's praying for them, saying that they would approve uh, the, the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says that, that he's, he's, he's exhorting them to hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have no reason to glory because I did not, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. And now here in chapter 3, verse 20, he's talking about how we should eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that phrase, eagerly wait, literally means to thrust forward your head and your neck kind of peeking out to, to see something or to hear something. It's, it's the idea of someone standing in anxious anticipation on their tippy toes, straining to not miss an important event or occasion. And this same expression is used multiple times throughout the New Testament to describe how we as Christians should be waiting with, with earnest expectation, with tippy-toe anticipation for the imminent return of Christ. In Romans 8, verse 19, several times in Romans 8, Paul mentions this. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul talks about awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul uh, explaining the, the, the testimony of the Thessalonians who had been radically saved out of a life of idolatry to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, talking about the, the destruction of the earth, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? In other words, it can't come fast enough because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The writer of Hebrews says, this in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And so the second, of, second coming of Christ is, is everywhere in, in the New Testament. Some 300 times it's, it's mentioned. And so there should be no question in our minds that Jesus is coming back. The only question is when. And Jesus himself made it clear that no one knows the day or the hour when he'll return. He will come back when we least expect it life, like a what? Remember? A thief in the night. A thief doesn't schedule an appointment with you. You're not sitting there waiting by the front door with your shotgun. He, he comes when you least expect it. 
And so consequently, we need to be ready for His return at all times and and live faithful lives so that whenever He comes back, there will be no reason for us to be ashamed of whatever He may find us doing at the time. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. We shouldn't fear His coming. If if you fear His coming, if you dread His return, that means you're not living the way you know He wants you to live. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes the return of Christ and how believers will respond and how unbelievers will respond. He says this, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so God, when Christ returns, he will come and punish unbelievers and cast them into hell for all eternity but the next verse says this when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed and so we should marvel as Christians at the thought of Christ's coming we should love his appearing as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, this should be our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 2, 2 verse 13. And even as John said in the book of Revelation, the last verse of the Bible, Jesus says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And John responded how? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In other words, come on, right now. And that's how we should think and live when it comes to the return of Christ. Now, it's sad to me to see how the imminency of Christ's return, the fact that he could come back at any moment, is too often overshadowed by the theology of Christ's return. We all know there's differing views um, about the timing of when Jesus will return, and, and some Christians just love to argue and debate about eschatology, which is the, the doctrine of future things. And so they'll sit around and talk about, are you pre-trib, are you mid-trib, are you post-trib, are you pre-mill, are you post-mill, are you ah-mill? And the imminency of Christ's return just kind of gets sucked. The life gets sucked out of it. And, and we need to understand that, that, that eschatology, the doctrine of future things, is not as precise as the other doctrines in the Bible. And so we can't be as dogmatic about it as we might like to be the way we can about other things like the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation. Those things are very clear and we can be very dogmatic about those things. 
But while we can't be absolutely sure about the timing of Jesus' return, what matters most is he's coming back. That's what matters. And I think we all can agree on that. And the, and, and the emphasis of Scripture when it talks about the return of Christ is that it's imminent. In other words, it could happen any moment. It could happen today. It could happen this next year. It, it could happen in your lifetime, my lifetime. One commentator said it well. He said, for Paul, preparation for the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, was neither a pious platitude or a millenarian or millennium obsession. In other words, it wasn't just some pious thing he talked about. It wasn't some millennial debate. It was a way of life. He said Christian growth was not an end in itself, but had an eye to the grand goal of standing before Christ. Paul was sublimely obsessed with the coming of Christ, as should we be. And so if we want to stay focused, if we want to stay motivated in our lifelong pursuit of Christ, we need to expect Jesus to come back for us at any moment. And then finally, finally, we need to envision what we'll be like in heaven. We need to envision what we'll be like in heaven. Sometimes coaches, teachers talk about visualizing the goal, right? Kind of seeing yourself, kind of do that, you know. You see the diver standing off on the side kind of with their eyes closed and they're envisioning, you know, the whole thing, whoop-de-doo thing and boom, psh Slash, right? They're visualizing the goal. And so we need to envision what we'll be like in heaven. Notice what Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he comes will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Paul has already made it clear in this letter that the moment a person dies, they are in the presence of the Lord in heaven. That's what he meant when he said in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, I either get to be here serving you or I get to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. There's only one or two places you can be at any given time. It's either at home in this body or present with the Lord. There's no intermediate purgatory, soul sleep, anything like that. When a person dies, their body goes into the grave, and their soul goes immediately into eternity. And you could call this an intermediate heaven, if you will, because it's not the new heaven and the new earth, 
but this intermediate period before the return of Christ, a person's soul is temporarily separated from their body. And yet based on the resurrection of Christ and many other passages in Scripture, we know that we will not be disembodied spirits floating around for all eternity. And Paul clearly anticipated that we would have physical bodies in heaven and we would be doing more than just sitting on a cloud playing a harp with some cute little angel wings. And here in this verse, he was envisioning the day when when Christ would return and refashion and renew and redesign our earthly bodies into eternal bodies that are perfectly suited for life in heaven. I mean, the present bodies that we have this morning are only suited for temporary existence here on earth. Why? Because they're corrupted by sin. They're subject to illness and injury and scars and hearing loss and diminishing vision and wrinkles and aches and pains and aging and death. Some of us feel more of those things than others. Paul himself felt imprisoned in this unredeemed flesh, which he called a body of death, from which he longed to be liberated. And and so our lowly, weak, humble, corrupt bodies must be changed in order to function properly in heaven, where where we won't experience disease or, or weakness or tiredness or sorrow or pain or suffering or aging or death, but best of all, No sin. No sin. Why? Because our bodies will be perfectly restored to how God originally created mankind in his image in the Garden of Eden. And so God's image in us will no longer be distorted by sin like it is now. We will will reflect his glorious image in the way he intended us to before Satan and, and sin corrupted his creation. In other words, we will be perfectly conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly reflected God's glory when he was here on earth. And so our resurrection, resurrected glorified bodies will be just like the one Jesus received after he rose from the dead. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Because here Paul provided the most extensive description of this glorification process of believers' bodies in what is known as the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And he is springboarding off of Christ's resurrection to talk about our resurrection. And notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then jump down to verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and each of the seeds a body of its own. 
All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, becoming a living soul, the last Adam becoming a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And you're like, what was all that about? He's just talking about us being glorified having glorified bodies. You say, well, when is that going to happen? Well, notice verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we have to have a glorified body. Because as it is, we cannot, our bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, a mystery, and it's a mystery. We're, We're in mysterious territory here. We will not all sleep. In other words, we'll not all die, but we will all be changed. Some will die, some won't die. Again, what is he referring to? Well, I think he's referring to the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul provides a little color commentary for, for us here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. If you want to zip over there quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the clearest reference, I should say the second clearest reference, um, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the rapture. We just read that. This is the other reference to the rapture in, in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you think that Paul believed that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime? He did. He was saying, yeah, okay, and Christ's going to come back and he's going to bring with him all those who have died and those of us who are still alive. He's talking in first person like, it's going to happen while I'm alive. And so, based on 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the body of New Testament saints will be glorified at the rapture. The bodies of those who have died before Christ's return, will be resurrected 
refashioned and reunited with their souls, the bodies of believers who are alive when Christ returns will be instantly transformed, instantly glorified. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet as we will be, as what we will be. We know when He appears, we will be like Him, because we'll see Him just as He is. You say, what about the Old Testament saints? Well, um, I think based on Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, they believed in a resurrection. God promised to, to uh, those that would sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. So there was the hope of resurrection even in the Old Testament. And uh, as best we can tell, piecing together the, 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 the accounts of the return of Christ in the book of Revelation, it appears that, that Old Testament saints will, will be resurrected, will receive their glorified bodies when Christ returns and set up his, sets up his millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20, along with the saints who are martyred in the tribulation period. If you're there, Revelation chapter 20 talks about Christ setting up his millennial kingdom, reigning for a thousand years, and in verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones. This is Revelation 24. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But notice it says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So just so you know, you want to be part of the first resurrection. Because the second resurrection is all about judgment. And John goes on to describe the great white throne judgment in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what's referred to as the second resurrection. It's the resurrection of judgment when all unbelievers of all times will be raised and given a glorified body to suffer for eternity in hell. Sobering thought this morning. The good news is it doesn't have to be that way for you because you're sitting this morning hearing the good news of salvation in Christ. And I think the, the question that immediately comes to our minds when we're talking about all this resurrection glorified body thing is what are, what are our glorified bodies going to be like? Well, obviously it's impossible for those of us who live in earthly bodies to fully comprehend what it will be like to live in a heavenly body. But as I said earlier, 
I think a simple answer is that our, our glorified bodies will be just like the one that Christ was given after his resurrection. And Christ's resurrection body is, is a prototype of what awaits each of us. And so all we have to do is look at the, the post-resurrection accounts in the gospel to see how Christ was described by his disciples. We read Luke 24 together this morning and we, we saw that Jesus had a real body of flesh and blood that, that you could see, that you could touch. He was recognizable. So people wonder, will people recognize me in heaven? Will they recognize me in hell? Yes, they will. He ate, he drank. He was no longer subject, subject to limitations of time and space. He, he appeared and vanished at, at will. He, he passed through walls. Uh, again, I'm not sure how far we can go in some of this, uh, you know, what, what will happen with us, but... I think we'll, it's safe to say we'll have limitless energy. We'll be in perfect shape. We'll never have to work out ever again. Amen. amen. <laughs> you, ladies, you'll never have to wear makeup again. I mean, amen, right? This is like, um, this is good news. Well, we don't have time to dive into all this, but I would recommend to you getting a book. It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And he's got an entire section of this book where he uh, seeks to faithfully, from the text of Scripture, describe suggest even at times what our glorified bodies will be like. It's fascinating to read. I would encourage you to consider reading it. But notice just quickly as we close here, all this will be made possible through the power of Jesus Christ. It says he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This powerful transformation that we'll experience will be accomplished by the same power which enabled Christ to rise from the dead and triumph over death and hell and force all of his enemies into submission so that every knee would bow and tongue confess that he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. The, the Greek word for power there is the dunamos, is where we get our English word what? Sound like anything? Dynamite. Paul mentioned this power in Ephesians chapter 1. He prayed for the believers in Ephesus that they would understand, that they would grasp the surpassing greatness of Christ's power towards us who believe These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All that to say that Christ has the power to not just change you in the future, but to change you now, to change you today. And while this passage may not say enough to satisfy our curiosity about our our future glorified state, it, it does say enough to supply us with plenty of comfort and hope while we wait expectantly in our sin-cursed, pain-racked body of death for this promise of glorification to be fulfilled.
And so as we run the spiritual race, we need to stay focused on this glorious hope. That when the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ comes again, he will conform us ultimately to himself and our salvation will finally be complete. Let's pray. Lord, we have a glorious future ahead of us in heaven. But even the joy of a new body and a reunion with our loved ones and even the opportunity to meet the great saints of old will be far surpassed by the thrill of seeing you face to face, the one who made it all possible for us to be there to begin with. And so we rejoice today that we have this glorious hope in the midst of a chaotic world that at times can be scary to live in. And even while we're continually assaulted by Satan and sin and dealing with the effects of living in a a fallen body, a corrupt flesh. We look forward to the day when we will sin no more. And all the sorrow and the sadness and the pain and the grief and everything else that is hard about life will go away forever. And we will live in holy perfection alongside Jesus Christ forever. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who came not knowing Jesus Christ, not having this hope, that you would help them to understand that it simply requires them to turn from their life of sin, living for themselves, doing their own thing, rejecting your lordship over their lives and submitting and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, believing that it's only through what he did on the cross and through his resurrection that we can be forgiven for our sin and made right with you. I pray that your spirit would convict those who need to be convicted this morning and comfort those who need to be comforted. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.